Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Denise. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Denise. I'm a compulsive overreader. Um, I'm a little nervous. Uh, I've never done this long a uh, share before. Um, so I'm just going to let God uh, talk through me. And if she's having an off day, then it's all her fault. So um, let's see. And it's really hard to work a crowd when you don't hear the crowd, I got to tell you. Um, so usually I live, whoop, usually I live in Los Angeles, um, but we have uh, a little place up here in Idaho. So, um, I've been in Idaho for two months, um, sequestered with my husband, my daughter, my daughter's boyfriend. So if there's a barging in, it's because they're just, that's who they are. Um, so, um, just to get some facts and figures out of the way, I have almost eight years of consistent abstinence, and I'm probably down about two sizes from my biggest weight. I don't do a lot of charting of weight because I was a compulsive dieter as well as a compulsive overeater, and it becomes kind of crazy for me if I'm like going to be obsessed on scales again, um, but I do use it as a tool. Um, so I was born a compulsive overeater. Um, I was born in Toronto, Canada, uh, to a nice, uh, perfect, uh, little family. Uh, except my dad was a musician and decided that, uh, he wanted to make it in the big time. So he got an Airstream trailer, put us all in it when I was in an older kid and moved us all to Malibu. And so I went through quite a culture shock and my family was, um, it was a lot of turmoil from that point on, but you know, I don't need a reason to be a compulsive overeater because I really believe I was born one. My don't, my mother used to brag that, um, back when women actually stayed in the hospital after having a baby that she had to, um, browbeat the nurses into getting more formula for me because she wasn't breastfeeding and I didn't do that in those days and probably a good thing because the pic one picture I have of her is like I'm in a bassinet in the back she's over here smoking in the hospital so welcome to 1961 um and um the other thing and I didn't even realize and it's part big part of my story is to realize that compulsive eating was a thing I didn't know it was a thing I just thought that was me, my defect, my secret, my, my problem. Um, so uh, anyway, my favorite story of compulsive overeating was while we were living in Malibu, uh, we went through one of those horrendous um, fires. And uh, I came, I got picked up at school and I was told by my parents I had five minutes to get anything I wanted out of our home before it burned down. And the first thing I thought of was, we're going to need dinner tonight. And so what I took was a ham steak out of the fridge. Um, 
where we were going to cook this ham steak, why a nice Jewish family had a ham steak, are questions I can't answer anymore. But it really pointed to the fact that I was a compulsive overeater. But I, in those days, they just said, oh, she's got a, a hollow leg. And I was really a tomboy growing up. Super, super active. Um, you know, at probably a mile and a half just to walk from the bus stop um, home, climbing trees, swimming every day that I possibly could. So it never showed up. And then in the middle of puberty, I moved uh, to Santa Monica and had California, had no friends, became inactive. And so the weight started showing up. And that's when I stopped being acceptable to my family, um, particularly my mother. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate, a lot of women can relate to that. My mom's superpower was that she could hear me open the refrigerator at any time if she was three miles away. She would be yelling, are you in the refrigerator again? Now I could pile all her food on my plate, but I just, you know, I knew I was no longer acceptable. And um, my brother had always called me thunder thighs um, most of my life, but I think I have large thighs. What can I do? I have muscular thighs. But that really, that's when I started and coming to meetings, I realized I would fantasize of having some horrendous, nearly fatal disease where I would go into a coma and wake up skinny. And what I realize now is that what I wanted to do was still be able to use food, but get thin. Um, and, you know, it's, I was just, it got worse and worse. So um, what happened was that I had a boyfriend uh, when I was 14 who had a little brother who looked at me one day and said, you know, you'd be really pretty if you weren't so fat. And that did it. Uh, the next day, I walked into my first Weight Watchers meeting, and nothing against Weight Watchers. I know people have used it very successfully in this program as a tool, but that became the secret. That became counting those little calories, having that little booklet. They used to put up stamps in them, and um, I became a saint, and that's what I felt like. I felt like I was holier than thou because I could stick to a diet and I could do it perfectly and I could lose weight and I could be noticed and I could be accepted by my family again. And that start, and then it was also the superiority of, you know, I can control my food and you guys can't. And that really started a yo-yo for most of my life from 14 on and, and a real cycle, I would say, because what would happen is for most of my life, until I came to these rooms, I was a brilliant dieter and then something would happen. Something would happen. Um, I'd break up with a boyfriend, I'd lose a job. Um, I'd have to move back home after college. It was something. And I could never figure out why something would throw me off so badly that all this work, and of course, it's, 
it's such a cliche. You start by losing 10 and then you gain 15 and then you lose 15 and you gain 20 and it started to snowball. And I'll get to, you know, the something a little later uh, when I get to, you know, what happened. So, um, you know, I did what everybody else did, you know, every diet, back and forth to Weight Watchers, back and forth through every change, every program. In college though, I discovered a way more fun diet and that was the cocaine diet. And um, then I became kind of a cokehead. And why I say kind of is because I was really cheap. So it wasn't like I had a lot of fun. I just used it as an appetite suppressant and probably as an antidepressant because I was diagnosed later with depression um, that got managed by medication. Um, but it was really fun. <laughs> I hate to say it. It was the early eighties and it was a really, it was so much more fun than Weight Watchers and it worked. And then when I got out of college, I didn't have the money for it. Um, I don't know how I had the money for it in college. Oh, that's right. I had a boyfriend who had it. That was the other problem. I had a boyfriend who was a compulsive overeater as well, not to take his inventory, but he was. And so we could do cocaine and go to dinner. So it was fantastic in college. And then uh, I, what I found was my second favorite love after that, which was my addiction to achievement. And once I started achieving in my given profession and my third favorite falling in love was my other way of filling that great God-sized hole in my soul, um, those put me in remit. I call it remission. I had a number of years where I could stay, you know what? And I have pictures and I forgot to put one up. Um, can you put the picture up that looks very eighties and I'm extremely tanned and, um, it, yeah, there we go. No, that is not it. That is the after picture in reverse. Keep going. There I am. There's the cocaine years, tanned and in Mexico and um, spaced out and very, very thin because even at my thinnest on my wedding day, I don't think I had, I don't think I ever had collarbones. It's just not my makeup. Anyway, we can cut away from that. So um, anyway, I got into my business. My, so what happened? How did I end up in these rooms, the real rooms and the virtual rooms was um, simple. I just couldn't diet anymore. And I um, came into the rooms and I um, don't know, I, there's a lot of God, I feel like there's a lot of God in hindsight in my story. I don't even know how I knew about OA. I mean, I, I knew about AA, I knew about these things. I didn't know how I knew about OA, but I knew there was somehow, because it was in my neighborhood, there was a meeting at 2nd Street and Hill Street in Santa Monica. And I wandered into it. I think someone's not muted. Um, Fred? Great. Anyway, I wandered into these meetings and I was so confused because I was looking for the food plan. I was looking for the punch card and I was looking for the calorie count. And instead, everybody was talking about God and miracles. And at first I thought, great, the miracle will be that I'll continue to be eating the way I want to and lose weight. I'll stick around. 
Um, that was not what they meant by the miracles. But what I did find was this book. And this book has like a pretty cover, but this is my big book. This is my third big book because the other ones, um, I keep one up here and then I keep one all over the place. But I started, I got a sponsor who said, read the big book. And I read the big book. And I am a big book thumper and I'm literary and I'm a writer and I loved it. I loved the history and I loved the old timely, timey language and I loved the imagery. But what I loved the most was when I got to like page 37 and they talked about the whiskey and the milk. And I went, oh yeah, that was like food combining, right? Um, and when I got to the jaywalker, I said, that's exactly how I feel. I am hitting myself over the head with a baguette and I don't want to. And then I said, why do I do this? And then I got to pages 60, 61, 62, 63 and realized that I was somebody who had to run the show. And when I read this, when I read on page 61, I mean, I can't tell you how circled and underlined self-pitying is in my books that the show doesn't come off very well and I bump into people. And that's what that something was. The something that would throw me off my diet, um, that would throw me, that would gain back 30 pounds I killed myself to lose was life. It was that I was a sensitive individual, which is also written in the book, and that I would take actions that caused people to retaliate, my feelings would get hurt, I'm overly sensitive, and I would have to soothe myself with my first love, which is food, which was, I was born that way, and I, I, I definitely a learned behavior. And then when I got to page 73 and read, um, as fast as he can, he pushes these memories, the embarrassment of being, of eating like this, Far inside himself, he never wants to see the light of day, and it makes for more drinking. And I went, oh, there's my shame cycle. And so I found myself in these books, in this book. But did I stay? No. <laughs> I found, because they say go and get the sponsor who has something you want. So I, at the age, in my 40s, picked an ex-ballet dancer because I'd always wanted to be a ballet dancer. And she was the thinnest in the room. And she also had the most strict, difficult, she said from day one, no sugar, no flour. And I went, okay, I'll try. And it just didn't work for me. And I left the rooms, I went to another diet. And then something happened again and that was i was replaced from on a project that i never saw coming and it blindsided me and i couldn't stop eating i couldn't get my head out of the refrigerator just like my mom had always said i couldn't stop so in 2012 i walked back into the room crawled i mean i really crawled up those stairs at hill street into the room and said I got to find an abstinence that'll work. I got to find somebody who understands what I go through. And um, so in the first meeting, I, I think it might be the third meeting, 
I found my sponsor, Michelle, who is right in my upper corner. And I insulted her, I think, when I went up to her the first time because I said, I am really desperate, desperate for a sponsor. I think you'll do. And um, it was just did not come out right. But for some reason, and this is another God shot that I got, I got somebody else whose major trigger was work. We both are in long-term relationships. We can both have friends. We function fine. We pay our bills on time. We are not in a basement, but we bump into, I found the person who was my mirror. And um, since that time, um, I've been working, I worked the steps with her. And that's what I really learned I think from my first sponsor was that I couldn't cut out sugar and flour. I couldn't find the willingness to do it without working the steps. And my philosophy about, especially about this program, because cold turkey is so hard with food. And what time am I working on here? Because, um, oh, seven more. What's so hard about this program is that we still have to eat. And, and what I found is that the philosophy that, that Michelle came from, from her sponsor, and her sponsor is also on this call, is on, on Zoom right now, and her sponsor is its degrees of willingness. We work the steps and we, um, we get re-educated our synapses get rearranged, our brain chemistry changes, our lives change. For me, what I had to do was become teachable because really what the problem I was having with the world, the problem, the reason I was bumping into people was because I was the person who had to run the show. I was the person who, had, who was sensitive and had to protect her ego at every step. So that I could put myself in a place of safety. And by doing that, I would bump into people and I wouldn't get along with people. And then when I didn't, I would eat. So my willingness, my will, and I'm sure Michelle would attest to this, is incredibly strong. And that has been a blessing in my career and in times of difficulty and in achieving things. It's not useful in this program. And wearing down my will has been like creating the Grand Canyon one drip at a time. The rock has had to slowly be worn down. And when I look back on my first sponsor situation of trying to give up flour and sugar, for me right away, didn't work until I'd worked the steps, until I'd gotten right-sized enough ego-wise to be able to accept God in my life, to be able to look and really look at my life in the past and say, God was working in my life even when I didn't know he or she was working in my life. And that there is a trust that goes forward that allows me not to freak out, that allows me not to go to the things that are bad for me, um, that allows me 
to not eat when I'm disturbed, to do other things when I'm disturbed, to make a call, to take a walk. Um, my abstinence, which I'm, you're probably wondering what it is, is three meals, two snacks a day. I've reduced it. I mean, it is, I only eat one snack because I'm of an age I really don't need another snack. And my meals are starting to look a little bit more snack-like because I just don't need the calories unless up here where I am in Idaho, I'm really moving a lot every day. I'm really doing a lot of outdoor activities, hiking and things. So I get hungry and I do need to eat. But just getting three meals a day after a life of either being on a total self-destructive binge or a restricted diet where I was either checking in, getting shots in my butt, taking pills I don't know what they were, checking in with people in white coats. Um, if I wasn't doing that, I was binging. So just getting, being able to sit down and eat three meals a day was my first step. And I'd heard somebody sharing who was really big and had lost hundreds of pounds say, in the beginning, they could only do three binges a day, that they had to get a plate so full of food that that's all they could do, but now they were thin. And I went, that gave me hope. That gave me hope from this room. Um, you know, just see, hearing the things that I'd heard in the rooms of people going through deaths of husbands, deaths of children, and still relying on God and not eating. The rooms gave me hope. The steps gave me recovery. Um, so I said I walked in in February of, of um, I did, should add that I did lose my abstinence once early on when I was working up in Vancouver. Um, and um, that was also the time when I had started really getting into the steps. So it was really, really challenging to be away from home and be in a new environment and uh, not have my family. So I started. And so now my absence day is Thanksgiving day, which is kind of ironic. Um, so what is it like now? What, um, I go to three to four meetings a week. Um, I take two service commitments, at least usually more. I've been an R2 rep. And I have to say for a woman who wor worked in a group environment and really, you know, wanted to run the show, there is nothing better to practice those new skills by being in a room of um, overeaters trying to decide on like a color for a flyer. <laughs> I mean, you really have to work at it. Is that time? You have 10 minutes. Thank you. So um, I'll wrap it up and then I can hopefully, there's questions, I don't know, but um, I, what else do I do? I sponsor five women. Um, one, I food sponsor from Montreal, which is so sweet to me because my daughter graduated from McGill in Montreal and it's a nice thing. And there's another little gotcha. Um, and when I was at work, I became one of those people. I actually started packing my lunch. 
Now, I work in the entertainment industry where we bring in quality food for free all the fucking day. And I was still realizing I couldn't lose weight and I didn't feel good about it unless Saturday, Sunday nights, I'd make family dinner, cut it, I'm still doing, cutting up a big thing of vegetables that I could grab, roasting some other vegetables and making a meat that would last me four days. And I loved it. I loved that freedom of just knowing this is my food and I know what it tastes like and I know what I wanted that day. And it just start and I, the weight started coming off. It's been a little more difficult when we're splitting cooking because the kids have been cooking and they bring their own food in and I can't stop them. So that's my big work now is to realize that it's not my food. So, um, you know, I look, I'll just close with this. It was kind of a funny thing. I was watching when it, the first season of 13 Reasons Why, um, which is a story told backwards of why a girl committed suicide. And I was sitting there thinking, why didn't I commit suicide? I was bullied. I acted out sexually because I was fat and wanted to be noticed. I had a lot of those things happen to me. Why did I never consider suicide? And then I realized, why would I kill myself when there's always cheesecake? And it was my compulsive overeating the fact that I could go to food that probably saved my life. And so now I look at this journey as an incredible blessing. And I look at all of the people I've gotten to meet and know, and I see all these people from all over the world, and that's a blessing. And my one saying during this difficult COVID time is find the blessing in the curse, because I think there's been blessings for me too there and I hope for other people and I'll wrap it up and I will fill the rest up with uh, questions. You got to see the fat picture anyway. You're very immodest because that wasn't very fat. Um, well, that's sweet, but that the truth is that the real fat pictures don't exist because I wouldn't allow anybody to take my pictures when I was at my heaviest. So I have entire stretches of years with my daughter where we aren't in pictures together. And that makes me incredibly sad, incredibly sad. So are there any, uh, any questions? If, if, when, sorry, I don't know how to do this meeting, but the thing you mentioned about suicide with cheesecake, my mother was like that. I think my mother brought me up, but she was always suicidal and she was always putting food, like exaggerating with food to the family and she was only happiest when she had a piece of cheesecake and that's how i grew up and it's very difficult you know to just because all my cooking now that i know how to do know how to eat healthy but she had a dilemma maybe she was mentally ill i don't know so trina but, I, I thought 
sorry to interrupt. Sorry, sorry. But, um, yeah, so do you have a question you want to ask? Please raise your, your hand. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah. Sorry. No worries. Does Mike L. from NYC want to ask a question? Go ahead. Yes, Mike. hi. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay, Denise, uh, thank you so much for your share. That's an excellent share. I I'm just I'm wondering if you can, being someone who seems to have been very career-focused, where there are mm -hmm. times where you struggled uh, and let your career be an excuse to not focus on your recovery and um, balancing that work recovery balance. I'm just curious if you can talk about that a bit, if that's been your experience. Well, I had no life balance uh, in the entertainment industry. It's so competitive and so ridiculous <laughs> in many ways um, that, you know, my hours were extremely long. Um, you know, I'd work till you know, two or three in the morning sometimes. So of course I had to eat. I had to eat to stay awake. I had to have a cup of M&Ms to keep me focused. I had to have whatever was in craft services um, because I had to work. And so, yeah, it was an excuse. Um, I wouldn't say an excuse, it was a reason. Uh, and one of the things I've discovered in COVID and the fact that, and I'm supposed to go back to a job is I, uh, I like more balance in my life. I like to sit down and have dinner with my family. Isn't that shocking? Um, and so I'm looking at ways of changing the way I earn in a living to, to have more life. Because I was very, very ambitious. Everything was about the career. Does that help or not? Yes, thank you so much. Okay, great. Now we have a question from the chat from uh, Deanna. She asks, how did you come up with your concept of a higher power? God, this is going to sound really silly. I think because my, I've always connect, connected to my faith, being Jewish, I've connected to it culturally, I've connected, that sense of wanting to belong, and I've, but I've always been drawn to studying religion, every religion, I taught it as a Catholic girls school, I, everything, so there's always been a spiritual quest, and I think I was just born with it. So it was not hard for me to reach out. And I mean, some people say, look at the, the, the waves and tell me there's no God. Well, I got a, my thing is a deciduous tree. Somehow God and nature, but it really is more convenient for us than the tree. When it's sunny and hot, the tree grows in front of our window and makes shade. And when it's cold, it loses its leaves and the sun comes in our house. And that helped me think about these mysteries that allow me to reach out for God, that God has my back. And I look back at my life. And sometimes I tell my sponsees this, look back at your life at the thing near misses, the time you almost got hit by a bus. What happened? Why didn't you? Why are you here today? when other people don't make it this far. You know, as simple as that. How did I find a husband 
who has accepted me at every size and in every state of craziness for 30 years. That's God. You know, how, you know, God to me is the sliding doors. And so I go back and look at every last little thing. How did I walk in a room and find Michelle? You go on, if you want to be, it's also what Einstein said, you know, you, you can not believe in God, she was an agnostic, but it's just easier. And sometimes it was an as if, I have to act as if, but that's the tools I've used to connect to a personal God. Thanks, Denise. Okay, we have just one minute left. So Debbie in Washington, if you wanna ask your question real quick. Yeah, sure, thanks. This is Debbie in Washington, D.C. And Denise, I loved your share, especially talking about uh, achievement addiction, addiction to love. So my question is, um, the cross addictions, when food got quiet and you were abstaining, did the other addictions get louder? How did you manage those uh, other addictions? Yes, uh, and I'll tell you, the um, since uh, I love my husband, um, the love addiction is like out of the question. Um, <laughs> and um, what did come up was shopping. The shopping addiction comes up. And I have to just put it down and remind myself that, hey, uh, I don't need another thing. And, um, but the other, um, like the cocaine addiction, which, you know, I cut out of my life really easily. I think that was more of a substitute for the fact that I needed to be on medications that I'm now on, which have stabilized me. So that has a lot to do with it as well. But, um, you know, I live a more structured life too. And I think that helps with the addictions because I'm not reaching for things. I live a more ordered life than I ever lived before. Thank you. Great, thank you so much.